You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host in New York City, Ankit Panda. And my co-host, Prashant, from Washington, D.C. How are you today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing, Ankit? Doing well. I'm uh, keeping a close eye on uh, U.S. President Donald Trump's first visit to the Asia-Pacific region, which has been uh, ongoing this week. He is currently in China, about the midpoint of his visit. He still has Vietnam and the Philippines um, on the agenda. But uh, Prashant, I thought today we would just take the temperature of how things are going so far on his trip, um, specifically the two legs that have been completed as of this recording, which are the two big Northeast Asian allies. So first, uh, after leaving Hawaii, where Trump was briefed by Pacific Command, he went to Tokyo, spent a couple days there, golfed with Shinzo Abe, took part in other official and unofficial activities there. And then he spent some time in Seoul. And the timing of this trip is really interesting because uh, this is the first trip by a U.S. president to this region since North Korea tested an an intercontinental range ballistic missile. And as we've talked about on previous episodes, uh, that specific capability introduces new challenges to the task of alliance reassurance. Um, It just makes everything a little bit harder. I mean, reassuring Northeast Asian allies has never been difficult for the United States. But pretty much now, um, anything that would be a net positive in the past now really goes half as far. And anything that would be a net negative in the past, as far as the alliance reassurance task goes, is twice as bad, you know, in some ways. So, uh, you know, and uh, there was a lot of anxiety, I guess, that Trump would maybe um, go off the cuff, uh, go off the script. And uh, very broadly, I mean, from a 30,000-foot view, it seems like he's mostly been able to uh, keep on script, uh, certainly a little bit more in Seoul than in Tokyo. Um, but let's uh, let's start a bit in uh, in Japan and talk a bit more in detail about what, what we observed there. Um, obviously, it was a packed agenda. Um, the alliance was certainly um, at the top of that agenda, but also simmering... Um, let's say, uneasiness, uh, not quite tensions, but uneasiness about the trade relationship between Japan and the United States, which uh, has been apparent since shortly after the inauguration when the United States unilaterally uh, confirmed that it would be leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, Tokyo remains invested in high um, high standards trade agreements like the TPP. Um, but anyways, Prashant, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you look at Trump's time in Tokyo, uh, what did you, uh, what really struck out to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you framed the visit uh, correctly, which is, you know, number one, uh, I think folks were very worried about whether President Trump would, would kind of go off script. And then secondly, I mean, the bar for the overall trip was was pretty low, right, given the, the past uh, history of the president, as well as the fact that um, on Asia policy, there's still a lot of uncertainty remaining, even on the broad contours, right? Like even on China policy, we don't really know where this administration is headed yet. A lot of senior officials and positions haven't been appointed yet, and even his domestic agenda hasn't been built out yet. So, um, you know, the the main focus of the trip was really to just reinforce his commitment, and I guess that starts with the true traditional Northeast Asian allies that the United States kind of holds as anchors in the Asia Pacific. So uh, in, with respect to Japan, like South Korea, I think that a lot of the work for the visit, thankfully, has already been done, right? I mean, Abe was in Washington already. There's been, uh, on the trade side and the economic side, there's a dialogue led by Vice President Mike Pence already. So this was really just to reinforce things. And uh, President Abe and... and uh, um, Prime Minister Abe and President uh, Trump already have a pretty good relationship that's been built up, so that was pretty good. But I think 
you know, you're right. The, the Japanese, I think, are very concerned on the economic side, on North Korea policy, and a lot of that will have to be seen going forward. I think the one thing that I'll say that was interesting in coming out of the visit is there has been this question, right? I mean, President Trump withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and the question is, you know, what is U.S. Uh, economic engagement look like regionally? There was some focus in terms of the U.S. and Japan doing things together in the Asia-Pacific or the so-called Indo-Pacific, right, on energy, on infrastructure. So that was, I think, one thing that we can give the administration credit for beyond, you know, the fact that there weren't any major mm -hmm. uh, off-script moments. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's that old cliche about U.S. foreign policy in Asia, which is that, you know, 80% of the task or 70% of the task is just showing up. Mm -hmm. And you show up, you tick the boxes, you say that the alliance is ironclad, that the United States will use the full range of capabilities to defend Japan and South Korea. And you've already done most of what needs to be done on a trip like this. The bonus, uh, obviously, for Trump, who, uh, you know, he he's a very personality-driven guy. I mean, he, on one level, you know, he wants to stir up uh, these personal relationships with uh, Abe, Moon, uh, to a lesser extent, and certainly Chinese President Xi Jinping, who he's been uh, tweeting about quite a bit. Um, but we'll talk about the China leg of the visit, uh, which is yet to be completed um, on, on the next episode. But, uh, you know, if I, if, if I really had to nitpick uh, the Japan visit, um, and, you know, this, I, this already tells you uh, how comparatively well things got that, you know, I, I sort of do have to do a little nitpicking to find things that <laughs> were... Um, maybe maybe not so great as far as the alliance reassurance task goes i mean first there was this uh, announcement that trump made at the joint press conference that you know abe would be buying kind of missile defense systems from the united states and then he'd be shooting north korean missiles out from the sky and he used this uh you know very kind of condescending tone that really struck out to me as like as he should be doing and he made this like off the cuff jab uh during his prepared remarks when he said you know well the u.s economy is better than the japanese economy but you guys can be number two and it's just this old kind of you know the old classic late 1980s trump mindset on japan a lot of that seems to still be very hardwired into how he perceives the japanese economy um so that was maybe uh you know just those moments any time i think maybe those moments aren't going to be as much of a sticker in tokyo as they might be for kind of um, analysts outside Japan. I think in Japan, the fact that, you know, Trump said all the right things about extended deterrence, about the alliance, uh, and even on North Korea policy, Abe and Trump pretty much uh, stood shoulder to shoulder. Neither of them um, explicitly opened a path for dialogue without denuclearization preconditions, and Trump actually reaffirmed that in, in his uh, speech to the South Korean National Assembly. So all things considered, I think, you know, this was, um, this went pretty much as well as it could have gone in Tokyo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, you, you wrote a piece on, you know, the, the, the technicalities of what, you know, Trump was saying about missiles and being able to shoot them down. And, and you know, I mean, that, that, that's right. And I think, you know, it, these are important specifics that on an issue like North Korea or even an issue like the South China Sea, I mean, this is something that you do expect. Um, and I think we've come to expect U.S. presidents to be fairly conversant in and very cautious in what they say, but unfortunately, that's not something that we we can expect clearly out of President Trump, right? And you know, mm -hmm. this creates a whole media cycle onto itself, where people are seeking clarification. Does he mean what he said? Was he joking? Um, but clearly, it causes a lot of anxiety that already was there on the North Korea question. So it isn't helpful. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, on that question of the arms, uh, the transactional rhetoric that Trump used to talk about this. Um, arms deal, I guess, with Japan. I mean, here's what he said, you know, he will shoot them out of the sky, them here being the North Korean missiles, when mm -hmm. he completes the purchase of lots of additional military equipment from the United States. 
The right. prime minister is going to be purchasing massive amounts of military equipment, as he should, and we make the best military equipment by far. I mean, just that whole bit, you know, some people ran with that as kind of ally, you know, allied reassurance, but to me it seemed transactional, not necessarily sensitive to Japanese security requirements. And our colleague Franz actually pointed out on Twitter um, a, a really important component of this, which is that, you know, Japanese military procurement decisions aren't simply, you know, it's not a matter of flicking the light switch like other countries. I mean, this was... You know, they would have to, you know, portion the funds um, and then eventually these capabilities, maybe five, uh, five or more years down the line would make it into the Japanese inventory. And there are real developments that are happening on the missile defense front that I think are significant. And they actually predate, uh, you know, this trip and even go back to uh, before Trump was elected. Uh, Japan will likely be procuring the Aegis Shore system, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, Japanese Defense Minister uh, Itsunori Onodera announced during Trump's visit that he'll be traveling to Hawaii to inspect the system there. Um, it makes sense for Japan, uh, given its uh, the size of its territory and its location comparatively to North Korea. So yeah, there is movement going on, but you know, just this, um, it it did, uh, you know, that criticism that some people were levying against Trump, that it made him sort of look like the arms dealer in chief, unless a, uh, you know, compassionate ally, I think, I think is, uh, is well placed to an extent. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it's also the fact that Trump tries in a lot of these trips and engagements to sneak in domestic politics when he can into these engagements because I think that's ultimately where his focus lies, right? So whether it's, you know, okay, you know, you guys are going to be buying stuff and the details remain unsaid or, you know, as we'll talk about later on the South Korea visit, you know, when he was <laughs> when he was giving the speech and later on in, in his remarks sort of pointing out, oh, you know, by the way, you know, we're, we're looking tough. We're the biggest military in the world. Um, this is where the best equipment gets made. So that a lot of these things, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot less to them than I think is often made out to be. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, you know, it's kind of my one, I, I'm sort of putting together still a, a unified theory of Trump. And one of the things I've realized is that, you know, all of these um, all of these stories that come out in his kind of diplomatic and foreign interactions that seem to be very much outside the realm of regular protocol or very unusual. I think there is usually a good domestic political explanation for it. I mean, you know, he's the America first president. He knows the kind of headlines he's going to get if he, you yeah. know, is seen as, you know, berating Japanese car manufacturers. Um, a few of them still don't actually build their cars. I mean, a lot of them do. Overwhelming majority of cars sold, uh, Japanese cars sold in the United States are actually manufactured in North America. But, you know, if he gets the headline where it's like, you know, Trump went to Japan and he told Japanese businessmen that they should manufacture more. And he, uh, you know, applauded kind of Toyota and Mazda for already doing so. And then, you know, he's, he's selling arms to Japan, which is going to build, uh, you know, lead to pork barrel spending on defense back at home and create jobs. I mean, all of this, you know, there is a uh, a pretty compelling uh, domestic explanation a lot of the time, I think. Um, but uh, let's uh, let's move over, uh, you know, across the Sea of Japan or East Sea, depending on your preference, to uh, to Seoul, where uh, Trump became the first U.S. president in 25 years to uh, participate in a state visit. Uh, this confused some people because obviously every U.S. president has uh, visited South Korea, but the state visit in this context means something specific. It means the South Koreans foot the bill, um, and there's just another level of ceremonial um, flair to everything. Um, so, uh, and this was, you know, I was I was pretty concerned about the South Korean leg of the visit. I thought it'd be uh, difficult, not only because um, the Trump and Moon administrations just have a different. Um, different outlook um, or have had a different outlook, even though they've been mostly speaking on the same page when it comes to issues like North Korea, um, but also the odds of Trump um, 
going off against the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement, Chorus, appeared to be high. But uh, again, you know, there were a few developments. Like he left uh, Peter Navarro, who's been kind of the main advisor back at the White House, um, encouraging Trump to kind of take a closer look at Chorus and potentially scrap it. He was left back in Washington with this trip, so he didn't actually come along. Um, so a lot of this, you know, seemed to be fairly well coordinated by the uh, NSC staff and responsive to kind of the interagency planning process on on uh, Korea policy. Um, and Korea, I thought, you know, I mean, to me, it actually looked like it went a lot better than the trip to, uh, to Tokyo. I mean, not that it was a, an appreciably large difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it seemed to have come off mostly well. I mean, he did talk about the location of U.S. nuclear submarines when he was uh, speaking in South Korea, which is never a good practice for a president. And Trump's uh, yeah. done that a few times now. Um, but, you know, he didn't go off the rails and threaten fire and fury and nuclear first use against North Korea for simply threatening the United States. Um, he, uh, you know, he said all the right things again on the alliance, uh, the the United States would be willing to use the full range of capabilities. He said that he he had a fairly, uh, you know, he had a fairly conventional sort of Republican sounding speech when it came to kind of North Korea. I mean, a really big emphasis on human rights and oppression and freedom on either side of the 38th parallel north, um, which uh, I think, you know, really rever reverberated with some people. And um a lot of analysts who've been critical of Trump, uh, I noticed, uh, you know, thought that that was actually a fairly uh, well put together speech on North Korea. Um, there was no kind of clear pathway to um, talks before North Korea made denuclearization clear and would be willing to put its nuclear weapons on the table. So that, again, I think is interesting because it takes us a little bit of a um, it takes us back from where we were in August when Madison Tillerson put out that off uh, that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that uh, talks could happen on a on a less um, on a less conditioned basis if North Korea simply agreed to a moratorium of missile testing, which it's unofficially I mean, which it's done since uh, mid September. Um, but yeah, what are we? Uh, you know, what really stuck out to you uh, in South Korea? Do you uh, agree with my general assessment, or do you have a different take? I think uh, generally, I mean, again, this is a trip where, in particular, I think people were were focused on because they were you know partly expecting or there was a possibility of Trump going off script on a really important issue like North Korea um, so the headlines were kind of always there in terms of that and I think you know he avoided the major pitfalls at least um, I think one place where the administration does deserve some credit is that you know there's been a lot of criticism on the North Korea front because the administration hasn't really focused on the North Korea nuclear issue around a broader context about how North Korea matters for Asia and within the broader region and US foreign policy and I think Trump did that to a certain extent I mean it was in part kind of a, a history lesson for South Koreans who already know their history pretty well but um, you know for Trump uh, in particular to sort of stand there and give a long speech and say you know here's the historical context and by the way here is you know South Korea which is a model for where Asia should be headed um, relative to North Korea I think he called the South Koreans you know the, the South Korean story of the Korea miracle mm -hmm. right so that broad framing I think you know matters because as you correctly pointed out I mean North Korea it's not only about the nuclear issue right I mean there's it's a human rights issue um, it's about broader nuclear nonproliferation that has implications for Iran um, and other cases as well so so I think that was good I think on chorus you know he didn't explicitly mention that but there was a you know a little bit of language snuck in there in terms of you know hey you know this agreement hasn't not been very good for the United States it's been unsuccessful and we need to negotiate that mm -hmm. so uh, you know he did manage to work in a little bit of his displeasure in there without sparking too much about the headlines 
Um, and I think in general, you know, you and I have talked about this before, right? You know, when push comes to shove, the issue is going to be sort of, you know, when do both the United States and North Korea determine that their positions are strong enough for them to come to the table, right? For the North Koreans, they're going to have to actually determine when that is in terms of delivering a capability in terms of a missile that's going to be able to hit the continental United States in a reliable, predictable way, right? And and for the United States, you know, especially for a president like Trump, he's going to want to at least appear tough enough such that this is something where he'll be able to go to the table but then say that, oh, there's some concession that the United States got, you know, yeah. for that. So uh, until we approach that point, irrespective of what Trump actually says and, and a lot of this transactionalism that's going on, you know, I, I think that's going to be the major question. One other final point, um, you, you wrote about this as well, right? I mean, that one of the issues that came up was, you know, how South Korea is sort of playing the United States, but also trying to repair its relationship with China. And I think there you saw Moon hint a little bit at that. I mean, he was still being a bit deferential to Trump, but he did, you know, the phrase balanced diplomacy did feature in his remarks, which, you know, tells you that, I mean, he is signaling, and I think South Korea is definitely signaling to the United States that, hey, listen, like, you know, we understand that you're taking this tougher approach. We're with you in terms of the alliance relationship on the security side. But, you know, we are still going to do what we're doing, which is still cultivating some closer ties with China because they're important to resolve the North Korea question, too. Right. right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the autonomy question has always been important to South Korea. Um, another major accomplishment or deliverable from this trip was the revised missile guidelines, uh, lifting the uh, payload limits on South Korea's um, missiles for its uh, massive punishment and retaliation strategy. Uh, so the South Koreans will continue to build um, longer range missiles, um, or sorry, missiles with uh, unlimited payloads, which effectively means that their ranges are going to be unlimited as well, since you uh, can uh, lower the payload weight on a missile designed to carry a heavier payload and effectively increase its range. Um, so yeah, there there is a lot um, a lot going on right now with um, with South Korea's own plan. I mean, this whole agreement with China over that I think is fascinating, uh, just the way it played out and really sort of came out came out of the blue before this trip to Asia. And the White House was caught caught off guard fairly, it seemed. I mean, McMaster addressed it in a press conference beforehand, but it really didn't seem like it was the result of detailed kind of behind the scenes coordination between the United States and South Korea it was something the South Koreans and the Chinese have been working on for some time. Um, you know, briefly, Prashant, I will say, you know, I mean, uh, you think back to kind of the rhetoric we heard out of Trump as a candidate about alliances, about proliferation, uh, about host nation support payments in Japan and South Korea. I mean, you know, if you'd asked me, I mean, and this is, you know, to give, I guess, Trump some credit here for uh, his performance uh, in Japan and South Korea. I mean, I could have never imagined that he would have, you know, uh, behaved the way that he did on these trips. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, you noted, you know, his language on trade, even on chorus. I mean, he in South Korea, I guess he he didn't really do much. But in Japan, you know, there's a little bit more about that. You know, Japan's been winning for decades, I believe, to use that sort of formulation, which is, again, you know, yep. funny to long term followers, of the Japanese economy uh, who might be familiar <laughs> with the uh, so-called lost decades. Um, but but yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating to see how um, I guess his his staff have managed to fairly uh, contain him well. And uh, you know, uh, Orville Shell, who's at uh, Asia Society, uh, he's actually traveling with Trump, and he's been sort of I guess keeping this diary just of his impressions. And he had this really interesting framing that I liked about um, how you know when Trump delivers these speeches from the teleprompter, it's a process of learning from him. Um, I guess. You know, there isn't a lot of faith that he's reading any uh, memos that the NSC might prepare for him. He might be dozing off during his 
presidential daily briefings. But when he's reading these speeches, uh, he's there. We have evidence that he's reading these words and he's internalizing them to an extent. And that might be a process of discovery for him. You know, I mean, uh, the fact that, you know, people kind of criticized his speech to the National Assembly for including kind of a Wikipedia summary of South Korean history and uh, what South Korea is. Um, But in a way, I mean, when he was saying those words, I mean, it was for him kind of, you know, maybe a process of internalization about, okay, it's like, okay, South Korea is a large democracy, an economic miracle. It's a close U.S. ally. Um, And it's sort of, you know, he's he's learning about the U.S. alliance system as he's as he's going about with um, with uh, this diplomacy. And I guess, you know, this is a theory that really, uh, you know, you can support or, or criticize right now. I guess over time, we'll, we'll see if this has any sticking power. But overall, yeah, uh, yeah overall, so far, so good. Um, I mean, uh, a lot could have gone worse, uh, let's just say. And the North Koreans didn't launch a ballistic missile, which I found interesting. They could have <laughs> at least launched off a few scuds, um, but yeah. uh, nothing this time. No, I think definitely. I mean, from the campaign uh, out to now, I mean, it, it, it's been a year. And and I guess, you know, given some of the predictions that folks had before, I definitely think that we've, we've seen a lot more continuity than that. Um, and, you know, there's always been kind of a tension when you have a rather unconventional administration coming in, like you think of the Carter administration in the late 1970s coming in, and you know there was an adjustment period there by advisors and such. I think the, the key issue to watch there is, you know, Trump's shown that he's more flexible on these security issues, where he can be hard and, and sort of, you know, hard-nosed, uh, because that fits with kind of his personality. When it comes to trade, though, that's a more difficult issue, and so we'll have to see how he moves on that. And then the other one is obviously, you know, human rights and democracy, right? I mean, given where the region is now, a lot of worrying trends, particularly in Southeast Asia, um, you know, a conventional Republican foreign policy or administration where I think a lot of folks hope that this will be at least, right? Um, at the very least, I mean, you can have policy disagreements on that, but, um, you know, we're far off from that, um, at least in terms of trade and democracy and human rights. I think there'll be a period of stabilization there, but that's where I think, you know, a lot of our conversation will pick up on the later legs of the visit, right? Whether it's China or Southeast Asia. Right, right. And uh, I guess to give listeners a teaser for the next podcast that we'll do, looking at the final bit of this trip, is is this broader idea of, quote unquote, a free and open Indo-Pacific, which really seems to be the Trump administration's um, burgeoning catchphrase for its uh, strategy in Asia. It has similarities to... Uh, Familiar concepts like the principal security network that Ash Carter introduced and older concepts as well. I mean, we're seeing a resumption of quadrilateral cooperation, a, a longtime dream of Shinzo Abe's back uh, dating back to at least 2006, if not earlier, a convergence between democracies. There was a recent U.S. Sri Lanka ministerial statement that even alluded to this idea, showing that it's obviously open to the countries. Um, all over the region. And it's, you know, it might be the United States answer to China's Belt and Road push. Um, but we're going to save that for the next podcast, Prashant, um, when uh, Trump will have concluded his trip to China, uh, concluded his trip to Vietnam, his attendance at APEC, delivered a major speech around that theme of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And then he'll be in Manila uh, and he'll also attend uh, the ASEAN Summit Tree and the East Asia Summit, uh, which he decided to extend his trip to do. Uh, so there is a lot to look forward to here. And a lot of what we said about, you know, the alliance management task in Northeast Asia, um, you know, we we might see, we might have a slightly different assessment. I mean, fatigue is a real problem on these trips, especially for uh, Trump. He's famous for not coping well with these long foreign trips, especially his uh, first trip in May. Uh, so there's a chance that by the time he at least ends up in the Philippines, he might be in a, in not such a great mood. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that sets up uh, very well for the summit meeting with Duterte. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Another uh, another charming charming gentleman. 
yep. waiting for him there. Um, but uh, thanks for joining me today, Prashant. Absolutely. And uh, for our listeners, like I said, we'll be back soon with more. Uh, in the meantime, if you like what you hear on the podcast and you haven't subscribed, please do so so you can uh, keep up with the latest episodes. And if you have subscribed for a while but you haven't left us a rating on iTunes, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon.